some of the richest people on the planet own my work. But the average person don't know who I am. I, I'm not a household name. I'm, I'm not. I don't compare myself to no Basquiat or Picasso. I'm just little old Milton 510 from Oakland, California. I don't try to change the world. I only try to change the world around me. Black creativity is unstoppable. The Studio Noise podcast takes you into the studio with Black artists and creatives making the art that moves the culture. You get to feel all the inspiration, technique, and passion behind the people making paintings, making sculptures, making prints, making noise. It's the Studio Noise podcast with your host, Jamal Barber. It's the noise. Yes, it's your boy, Jay Barber. Artists can only hope to one day have an identifiable style. You know what I'm talking about because you know it when you see it. You want people to look and say, that's you. That's that piece right there. Ain't nobody ever made nothing like that before. It's got to be you. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's a mix of style and intention that makes something recognizable like my man, Milton 510. Milton Bones, today on the podcast, here talking that good talk break it down how he thinks about his artwork and all the images and symbols the color the text how he mixes it all together and make that good old gumbo that you call them five tens <laughs> everybody know them five tens when you see them yes so this one right here is full of gems you're definitely going to be inspired be ready to get back into the studio keep making that noise that's what i want you to do keep those artists inspired out there and studio noise Noise with a Z, the voice of black art, bringing you the very best in contemporary black art every week. You can hear from amazing creators from all over the world. First and foremost, we're talking about art, right? Inspiration, materials, the stories behind all those creative processes. And second, we're talking about black people. <laughs> That's right. We're highlighting the people that don't always get highlighted. They don't always get valued in the same way. You can listen to this episode and you'll hear Milton's story about dealing with the Oakland Museum and you'll hear exactly why this show exists and why I produced this podcast to be unapologetically black, archiving the contemporary black art voices that you love to hear, that you want to hear, that you need to hear. And if you're down with that mission, if you love what you're hearing, why don't you go ahead and keep up with us at StudioNoisePodcast.com. Go through the archive, listen to all the great episodes that we got, all the people that we've ever featured. And you can subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and you can share with your people. We want everybody to know about the noise. You can join our Patreon. The link is in the show notes. Every little bit you contribute help keeps this show going. And, you know, I want to keep it going. Now, you know, I do this just for y'all uh, to make sure y'all get all this inspiration and introduce y'all to all these different flows and flavors that they got out there. So I sure do appreciate it. Every little bit that you give, I can't tell you how much. I appreciate everybody that gives a little bit to the show. And so I do my best to keep it going, right? <laughs> to keep giving you the very best in black art. So right now, go ahead and head to your favorite social media group. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Your high school cousins. I mean, what you, your weight loss group, whatever it is, tell them. Post it. Go ahead and post the link to this episode right here because they need to hear it. And tell them that we got Milton 510 Bowens dropping gems today right here on the podcast. Tell them. It's the noise, baby. <laughs> yes, we back. It's the noise. Hi, everyone. This is Carla J. Harris. I am an artist and a curator based in Los Angeles, California. And you are listening to Studio Noise. 
All right, it's your boy Jay Barber back with Studio Noise, the voice of black art, bringing you the best black artists around that I can find. And of course, I've been a fan of this brother's work for a long time. I got Milton Bones on the podcast. How you doing, man? I'm doing good, man. Thank you for having me. That's what's up, man. So you Milton 510, man. Tell a nice little story about how you got to 510 with your name, man. Tell them about it. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I mean, Milton 510 is my artistic signature. And a lot of times, like when people read my bio and they, and they discover that I was born and raised in Oakland, California, they make the immediate con- connection because 510 is, you know, Oakland's area code. But actually, when I was born, Oakland's area code was 415. Uh, it, it it got changed to 510. So the reason I actually signed my artwork, Milton 510, is because I'm the fifth boy in a family of 10 children. Wow. There were five boys, five girls. I'm the fifth boy and the 10th child. So that's what, that's what drove me to start signing all of my artwork, Milton 510, because, you know, I, I was born and raised in East Oakland uh, my entire life. I mean, you know, was born at Highland Hospital, you know, grew up in East Oakland, um, lived lived in different parts of Oakland my entire life. And for me to just, you know, forge a career as a fine artist wasn't typical during the time in which I was raised. Mm. So for me, it's, it's like a subtle reminder every time I sign my name that all nine of my siblings and my community is what afforded me the ability to become a fine artist. Oh, that's right, man. Oh, we're going to have some good time on the show right now, man. You're giving it up already. <laughs> I, love, <laughs> I love it, man. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on, man. Like I say, I've been a fan of your work, and your work to me like is very, very distinctive. Like You know a Milton Bowen. You know that 510 <laughs> everywhere you see it, man. It, it's the composition. It's the color. It's the imagery. Like how you set it up, man. So we all, all want to go through and break it down a little bit. And you can, you know, kind of give the audience like a little glimpse of like why you're making the choices you make. So we're going to okay. start with the the imagery, like the the pictures that you're picking. You usually you describe them as icons uh, of black history that you're going through. Like, tell me how are you sourcing the material and, and where did you get this interest in, in those particular pictures? So, um, you know, I jump back and forth a lot as an artist. Um, I, you know, first of all, man, I've been doing art for 30 plus years um, professionally. Like, I, you know, early back on when I was a kid, like the first things I used to do, man, was scribble inside the blank pages of dictionaries and encyclopedias. Mm. For those young heads out there, an encyclopedia is a book. <laughs> they don't know. <laughs> yeah, they don't understand. <laughs> you know, it's, it's way before Google. So, <laughs> so, but my mother, when she would open up those encyclopedias and dictionaries to help my other brothers and sisters do their homework, you know, all you would hear through the house is Milton, and everybody thought like I was getting ready to get like a beat down. <laughs> Scribbling in the books, because you know, I mean, I find a blank page of paper. You know, I'm a kid. I don't, I don't know, it's not to be used or decorated. So I'm grabbing my crayons and pencils, and I'm trying to draw inside these books. But she didn't punish me. She just pulled me aside, you know, and you know, with whoever she was helping with their homework at the time, she would be like, you know, look, look, no, if you, you know, scribble in these books and mess up these books, you know, which are very, you know, important. I can't effectively help your brothers and sisters with their homework. 
So what it did is it created a curiosity for me to want to understand what was in those books early on. Mm -hmm. So like when those kids grow up reading Dr. Seuss, I grew up thumbing through Britannica encyclopedias. So I didn't know that later in life, this quest for information and text would be the central theme that kind of sparks my creativity. So like when my brothers and sisters would get in trouble, um, like, you know, with that many kids in the house, man, it was mad grocery shopping. Like sure. my mom, <laughs> yeah. Moms and pops was at the grocery store like weekly. So, but back in the day, you know, when they would, you know, bring in brown Safeway paper bags home, when my brothers and sisters would get in trouble, my mother would just make them break them down and cut them up and either tape, tape or staple them together and make me these little makeshift sketch pads so I wouldn't be going around, you know, <laughs> the, the, the books in the house. So that's that was my early start, you know. And so my father passed when I was 10 years old. And I really didn't understand, like, I was using art to deal with the trauma. So, you know, I went out, man, and just, you know, started straight up doing graffiti. Now, this is right at the time when hip-hop is being born. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, Beach Street as a as a film is like one of those pivotal moments in my life that just changed my whole perspective on art. And, you know, and I went out in the community and just started putting art everywhere. And it actually landed me in trouble. I, I, got, I, got, I got arrested for tagging the Oakland police car. <laughs> and, but I was a juvenile. So in my mediation hearing, uh, there happened to be an, uh, a brother there uh, by the name of Robert Collier, who works for the East Oakland Youth Development Center. And he asked, could he speak to the mediator? He asked my mother, could he speak to, to the mediator on her behalf? And she was like, well, somebody needs to speak to him because I'm going to kill this boy. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and he basically got me enrolled in the Renaissance School of Arts, which was located in North Oakland, right across the street from the California College of Arts and Crafts, which is now known as the California College of Art. And I did my seventh grade through 12th grade year at an art school. So, you know, I've been formally trained as an artist since the seventh grade. And then, you know, I got a full ride scholarship. I attended the California College of Art for my freshman year before I would drop out and join the military. So all of this over time just lended to this rich journey of exploration and discovery for a lot of different reasons. But the most pivotal thing in terms of addressing the question and how do I choose these images for my work, these black and white icons, is there are two people who are like my biggest inspirations as an artist who are actually not artists themselves. I got a whole separate group of artists who inspire me that are actual artists, visual artists. But the two biggest inspirations to my approach as an artist happen to be Spike Lee and Ken Burns. Hmm. Okay. The way they tell stories are, it's just beyond phenomenal to me. I mean, Spike Lee gave me my militant courage. Um, when I was in the military, I had seen, you know, um, She's Gotta Have It. You know, it was, it was a cool, quirky movie. Yeah. But noticing in the movie, you know, that black and white footage is what drew, it, what drew me to that film. You know, how it, how it was shot in that black and white. So, Looking at Ken Burns documentaries, if people pay close attention, anytime Ken Burns is dealing with the past, the stuff is always in black and white. 
But when he's talking to a scholar or an heir or somebody that's living that has testimony of that moment, they're always in full vibrant color. Hmm. So I took those approaches to storytelling visually and applied them two dimensionally in my art. So when you look at my art, the historical document or the historical icon is always in black and white. And everything else is in full bold color, including the text. So I try to mimic two dimensionally what my two favorite filmmakers do through the use of film. Ah, oh, man, that's a great explanation, man. It makes so much sense. And so I, I guess it take me to the second part because you mentioned it a little bit when you talk about the text. Um, the text, it goes from kind of factual stuff to symbols to like quotes to all kinds of stuff. And all this is handwritten by you. Is that, is that right? Yeah. <laughs> nah, that, that, that's fantastic, man. So tell me, where does the writing come from? And how did you like get into the, I, well, you kind of hinted at it a little bit when you talk about graffiti and marking stuff up. But yeah. like, give me give me the whole breakdown of, of where you got to including that writing into your works in such a, a, a statement way. You know what I'm saying? Like it's like it's central to the the productivity the productivity of the piece. Yeah. So so like when I was a you know when I was a young head, um, I used to have to catch two buses to get to school. So you know at the time I lived in East Oakland, but the, my art school was in you know basically. North Oakland on 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 the border of of Claremont and Berkeley because we were right there off of Broadway Terrace. For anybody out there listening that knows the Oakland community, you, you kind of know these locations that I'm dropping. But so I had to catch two buses. So one of the buses, the 40 line, would take me downtown Oakland. Then I would have to get off the 40 and either get on the 51 um, to take me up. You know. Uh, to, to basically to, to my school, take me up Broadway till I got to Broadway Terrace and would get off and go to my school. But there was a bookstore downtown, Dolores Bookstore. And it's like this big bookstore that got all these newspapers and books from all over the world. They had every newspaper like the Chicago Times, L.A. Times, New York Times, Washington Post. So right right next to that, the the, the front door, of that bookstore is the bus stop that I had to sit at to go to school. So I started seeing, all, I mean, from the seventh grade all the way through the 12th grade, I was seeing, you know, all of these newspaper headlines and there was artists on there. We're talking about the era of art in New York that just had exploded. So we, they were coming off of, you know, basically the bridge artists who were Rauschenberg, Lichtenstein, Jasper Johns, and all of the pop artists were blowing up. Andy Warhol, Jean-Michel Basquiat, Keith Haring, Francisco Clemente. These dudes was over all these newspapers. And when the first time I saw Jean-Michel Basquiat, and they were calling it graffiti, mm. and I was like, that ain't graffiti. It's something, but it ain't graffiti. Because it was social commentary, and it was very, you know, intentionally simple. Like people like to say childlike, but it was nothing childish about Basquiat's work. It's the simplicity. And as an artist, making something look simple ain't no simple task. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So going to an art school, I knew the immense skill level he had 
by making those paintings look the way that they did. So it intrigued me because, you know, traditional graffiti, and this is the, uh, this is the ironic thing about graffiti. When you look at graffiti cats today, like contemporary graffiti, you see these beautiful pieces, but don't nobody even know what they say. <laughs> yeah. And the whole thing about graffiti is you trying to get your name up for recognition. It's like you trying to brand yourself no different than like a soda company. Like you want your name to be seen everywhere like Coca-Cola or you want your name to be seen everywhere like Nike. But today's graffiti artists, they so elaborate with their with their compositions and their names and their letters. You can't even understand what it says. So, you know, getting back to the simplicity of when I was doing graffiti, you know, I was like, man, that 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 dude is something else. So I just followed his career until he passed and was looking at how the text in his work was intentional. It wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't by chance or happenstance. It was intentional. So this whole thing about what made me want to include text into my work really was just a tribute to Jean-Michel Basquiat. That's how it started out. Just, you know, dropping a word or two here or there. But what really forced me to start putting the, the verbiage and the language that I use today, the historical quotes, the, you know, lines from hip hop songs or whatever, and blending all of this stuff together to make new language was because of the guy who I give credit for me being an artist today. And his name is David Bradford. He was the head of the art department at Laney College. Laney College is a junior college in Oakland, California. When I got out the military, man, I, I enrolled in Laney College just to use my GI Bill. And I met David Bradford. And dude is like Yoda. <laughs> he tricked me, man. I'm sitting in class and I'm knocking out the assignments. You know, I'm really just there. And I only took art classes. I, I was just there trying to use up my GI Bill and, you know, just have a check coming in every month. I decided what I really wanted to do. And one day after class, he pulled me to the side and we had this deep conversation about art and art history. But he tricked me. It was that Mr. Miyagi, wax on, wax off. <laughs> He's after after he tricked me into like, you know, and I, and I went to art school and I tried to impress him. You know what I'm saying? This is my teacher, my man. You know, I, I looked up to him, you know, so. In my, he's spending this time with me and he's trying to pick my brain about art. So I'm trying to impress him and show him what I know about art and art history. And at the end of our conversation about the Renaissance, you know what he told me, man? He said, young brother, don't you know black people paint too? <laughs> and it, I was stuck because for over 90 minutes, not a black artist was in our conversation. Mm -hmm. And he said, tell me something about any one of the painters from the Harlem Renaissance. He's like, no, nah, I want to know about the jazz. I don't want to know about, you know, anything else related to the Harlem Renaissance. None of the, none of the poets, nothing. Tell me about an artist. And I did not know one of them. And he said, so now you went to an all art school from the seventh grade through the 12th grade, and you did your freshman year at one of the most prestigious art colleges in the country. And you don't know one black Harlem Renaissance painter. He said, it's not your fault, young blood, but that's by design. He said, look, we could talk about anything you want to talk about. We could talk about the writers, the A's, the giants, the warriors, don't, don't matter. 
but we can't talk about art until you can talk to me about art that black folks did mm. the same talk to me about what all of these dead white masters have done mm -hmm. and he set me on a pilgrimage to learn about my people's contribution in the arts and dude it was like he was yoda and i was a padawan <laughs> <laughs> and 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 he's really respond i mean i'm telling you dude i mean so I, a lot of times i get choked up telling the story because if it wasn't for him there would be no information in my work mm. but i felt compelled after that conversation to make sure everybody knew how uniquely beautiful the contributions of all African-American creatives are. So I consider all of them creatives, everybody. Dr. King is a creative. Uh, John Coltrane is a creative. It, I'm, going, I'm, I'm, I'm elevating them. I'm, I'm, I'm uplifting them. So here's the deal. When you look at my new approach, my people's art campaign pieces, like these, these little affordable original works that I do that I drop on social media. Yeah. My love of baseball is where that is inspired from. Basically, all I'm really trying to do is create my own tops collection of black historical baseball card icons. But they're all just real small original paintings. But I look at them like how I cherished collecting baseball cards. So I want, I want my people and all people to look at collecting these little paintings and cherish them like a little kid cherishes when they open up that pack of baseball cards and they find a rookie card of Derek Jeter. <laughs> that's how I want them to feel. Right. And so that that that's that's my new approach that I've taken with this with this ongoing uh, collection called the People's Art Campaign that I that I've been releasing through social media. So the information comes from this exploration that Mr. Bradford put me on to understand and identify who these people were, and and through this exploration, I leaned on Jacob Lawrence and Romare Bearden the most because they were post Harlem Renaissance artists. Mm -hmm. There's a quote that Jacob Lawrence has that changed me forever. And it says that an artist may not be able to tell an entire story in one painting. That's why I do multiple works. Some people call them series. Like the Builder series. And, you know, he's got, yep. you know, so he's got all of these different series that he did. And that just unlocked me for some reason. It was like, you know what? I don't got to try to put all this information in one picture. I got as many pictures as I want. Right. Put as much information as I want. And I and, and, and if I want to tell a story about one individual with 150 pieces, so be it. So, and then Romeo Bearden, because he said, although most artists look at collage as basically the stepchild medium, because if you notice, there's not a bunch of collage artists who are recognized in art history. That's true. And there's only a handful of contemporary artists now getting acknowledged as being a collage artist. Like, it's a very small club. And even Romare Bearden himself, he's never, none of his work has ever even gone through an international 
or American auction for over a million dollars, which I think is blasphemous. This is Romare Beard we talking about. Oh, I completely agree with that. So when I was when he was he was saying that, and he said, you know, we people think art is your ability to capture a likeness. Like Romare Beard, I mean, dude is a genius. He was breaking it down. And he was talking about how. You know, and then what would really move me is when he explained how he took all of these Ebony and Jet and National Geographic magazines and he cut them up and re put re reconfigured them, fragmented, because he said the African American didn't know exactly their, you know, direct lineage back to the continent. So we're all pieces of Africa. So he took these pieces of African mask and he took these pieces of black faces from Ebony Jet and National Geographic and he reconstructed them to make this this beautiful creative amalgamation of black people in collage. And I was like, man, you know, you don't have to sit and render everything. You don't have to sit and do photorealism to capture this likeness. I can take the likeness directly and use it. And then just come up with my own creative spin to elevate it the way that I want to elevate. So I look for a lot of these black and white photos. I, I just go through public domain and I, and I look. So mm. I look for photos that are in the public domain, you know, because I don't want to be disrespectful to anybody's, you know, estate or right. family. So, you know, I find all of these, you know, free use images. That's why a lot of times you'll see I use the same image over and over again. Um, you know, and I actually have been like, foundations and estates have approached me now and have given me the rights to use their people because they just like the way I do it. <laughs> <laughs> that's the stuff. Yeah. That's good stuff right there. So recently, you know, Sammy Davis Jr.'s estate, they gave me the right wow. to use his imagery to do a, do a collection on him. Um, so yeah, man. So it's, I mean, it's, a, it's an amazing thing, but I just use these black and white photos and then, you know, I apply my quote unquote, directorial strategy to it. I take these <laughs> I place them on the surface. I bring in organic elements, symbols, materials, and then I hit you with that hip hop verse, that that poetic smash. And 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 hopefully that text resonates or gets you to look at that icon just a little different than you did, you know, before you encountered my piece. Oh man, that's great, Joe. Tell me about where. So, it's a, a lot of different symbols that you use inside of it too. So, I'm gonna ask you about a couple of them. Uh, one is the tally marks. Like I see that uh, like a lot pop up in your work. What's the significance of those? Well, tally marks are the oldest method of keeping time. Like you know, and I discovered that just from watching you know them old you know the prison movies like Escape from Alcatraz. <laughs> 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 yeah, counting the days on the wall. Yeah, maybe <laughs> counting days on the wall and scratching the tally marks in on the wall. So I, the, the most interesting thing in terms of it's the oldest method of recording time. So the reason why I use it is in every one of my paintings. It's kind of like Hirschfeld. You know how Hirschfeld, the, the the illustrator Hirschfeld, he put Nina, his I, I think it was his, his his granddaughter's name in every one of his illustrations. He wrote the word Nina inside his, his, his illustrations. So in every one of my paintings, you're always going to find the numerology 510 in every one of my works. Mm. So one of the easiest ways to do it is through the use of tally marks. But I get pretty clever in how I do it. 
but it's also the oldest method of recording time. So what I'm saying in these paintings, when you see these tally marks appear, is like, this is just one snapshot in a moment in time that is bigger than all of our comprehension or understanding. Mm, I like that. So that that's pretty much my main use usage of the tally marks. Oh, I like that. I like that a lot. So what about the the copyright symbol to see with the circle around it? Yeah, and I mean that's that's a d d direct snatch from Basquiat in terms of paying tribute to him. But there is a significance of why I use it. So I use copyright and trademark, and you'll notice like I'll put copyright like behind a name or a phrase because copyright is ownership means you own that. Like your name is your legacy. That's you. You own that. That's who you are. And and you know and and trademark is like what are you known for? Like is this something that you're known for? So when you see me drop that trademark behind the word America, you mm. better read the rest of the painting. Mm. I'm probably telling you that America is notorious for something that <laughs> 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 they have become known for. Yeah. Like this, they trademark for doing people wrong. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I like that. I like that. I like that. So that that's that's that trademark and copyright. You know, sometimes, very rarely, you'll see I'll drop that registered on there too, that R. I'll put that on there too. So they have real meaning. They ain't just there randomly. Yeah. You gotta, yeah. You gotta kind of read them with the rest of the body of the work to see what I'm actually talking about. Right. Cause because it's more of a your art becomes at that point more of an experience. Like you have to like bring some kind of knowledge and interact with it. Like you gotta like figure it out like a puzzle. Well, you know, my tagline is I make art for education, not just decoration. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's right, Joe. That's right. One more I ask you about is the railroad tracks. Oh, yeah. Now, the the, the funny thing is, like, I, I have been doing it's funny. I mean, you, you, you're creative, so you understand this. So like, we all it's funny. You'll see something that somebody's done and you have been doing it for a long time and it'd be like, Man, we we cooking from the same pot. Yeah. Like, <laughs> right, yeah. It's like you see something and it's like, so what happened was I had been using train tracks just because as a little kid, like anybody else. I mean, it's like, man, you know, I grew up watching old westerns, Shirley Temple, cowboy and Indian movies. So you get all of these like different experiences in your head because when you're the baby of 10 children, you don't make no difference <laughs> on the radio or the television. You got to watch what your brothers and sisters watch. You got to listen to what your brothers. <laughs> so I grew up watching a wide range and listening to a wide range of everything. So like I got a brother. He loves old Westerns and them old black and white gangster movies and stuff like that. So I just always found trains intriguing. And then it's in trains are about transportation or the journey. It's about traveling. But what attracted me the most about trains is the hobo aspect you know like in the old movies where people were just hoboing oh yeah just, yeah with their bag on a stick like just yeah. hopping trains exactly so my whole thing was when i first started coming to an understanding of the discrepancies in american history and i really started researching reconstruction and this is later in life you know i'm talking about after i didn't have my yoda meeting with mr bradford so when I started investigating Reconstruction on this quest to gain some more information about what I could use as subject matter in my work, that whole train and the great 
migration aspect really it was almost like you know that paul falling off the horse on the road to damascus moment man mm -hmm. it was like spiritual for me so that's the train tracks and you'll notice that primarily my train tracks run vertical across the middle of the bottom of my paintings but every now and then you'll see them take a detour going up and that and in those paintings it's a direct reference to having to migrate from the south to the north very calculated so that's that's where those train tracks come in because i said one day when somebody you know god willing ever gives me a legitimate retrospective and they and they invite collectors back and they get these works and they put them up in a big museum space you're gonna see how these train tracks guide you around the institution mm. and you're gonna see how all of this story is really connected see the two things, and this is another aspect that a lot of people never pick up on my work. There are whole bodies of my work that are basically metaphoric quilts. You'll see these little blocks of colors. Mm -hmm. You'll see things that are stitched together because this metaphor that America is a melting pot is probably the one of the most misunderstood metaphors that has ever been tagged on America. Because America for African-Americans and people of color America is more like a quilt. A quilt is a bunch of distressed pieces that have been stitched back together to have a new purpose and strength that covers, comforts, and protects and provides warmth. And that's the black experience. We are a quilt, living and breathing. Yeah, so at, one, so at some point, you know, when people are able to see like a large, you know, collection of my work in our, in a, in our, and they're able to stand back away from it and look at it, you know, as a whole and not just an individual image. Some of these, you know, visual metaphors will make more sense because the pieces are all connected. My whole approach to everything I do is tying our story together because it's been fragmented for so long. Mm -hmm. My name is Sudeka Nzinga Terrell. I am a fine artist, curator, and arts educator, and you are listening to Studio Noise Podcast. Uh, I, like, I like that a lot, John. And so it seems like you are, like, even over the course of your career, you're picking up symbols as you go and kind of continually reuse them, right? So it become self-referencing, like in how you're, like, putting the artwork so like past work connects to the future work and it all becomes like this one big menagerie where you can kind of understand your way of thinking. You know what I'm saying? Like even in, in how you're putting uh, all the different texts inside your work, how do you think it's changed over the 30 years you've been making art? Like, do you see it becoming more charged at times? Do it, is it becoming more soft at times? Do you, does it understand the question? Yeah, no, I think, I think um, the one thing that people will say is that, I've shown a great consistency in how I've approached my subject matter. Mm. Um, and sometimes that's a good thing. And sometimes that's not such a good thing because 
when you think about like where I'm at now and where black art is now, that that this this is a new discussion because I mean, like I said, I've been doing art professionally for over 30 years. I have work that belongs to museum collections. I have work that belongs to Fortune 500 companies. I have a very extensive collector base that is, you know, you know, full of a variety of all type of entertainers and celebrities. Some of the richest people on the planet own my work. But the average person don't know who I am. Mm. I, I'm not a household name. I'm, I'm not. I don't compare myself to no Basquiat or Picasso. I'm just little old Milton 510 from Oakland, California. I don't try to change the world. I only try to change the world around me. So with that understanding of who I am as an artist, I stick to my role and I know what my mission is. The mission was given to me in that conversation with David Bradford at Laney College and I haven't strayed from it. So there was a time when black artists didn't even want to be considered black artists. Oh yeah, no man, there's still time. <laughs> so like, yeah, I had that conversation a lot with people, especially like this this podcast, a black art podcast. Like, it's it's yeah. meant you know to put you not put you in that box, but to reveal who you are through this kind of lens and spectrum. And Jamal, I'm gonna tell you like this, and I know you have ran into this too as well. People say, you know, why I, you know don't call me no black artist. I'm just. <laughs> And that's your opinion. That that's your you know. Hey, if that if that's what satisfies you, fine. So be it. I'm not I'm not knocking anybody that takes that position or anything. But there was this time that I just personally felt, and I'm going to repeat that, that I just personally felt that I'm black. I was born black. I was raised black. I'm going to die black. Everything I do is black art. And what made me take this position is that when my career started to take off, this is in the, you know, the late 90s to early 2000s, some of my collectors approached the Oakland Museum and tried to solicit them on my behalf to do a show. This is the Oakland Museum in California. Mm -hmm. They arranged a meeting at the, at, for, for, with me with the curator that was at the museum of that time. Now, I, ha I have been going to the Oakland Museum Every year on a field trip from 7th through 12th grade, nothing in the Oakland Museum actually at that time represented Oakland. It was California art, but it did it wasn't Oakland. Mm -hmm. and, and that never really set well with me. So I'm explaining this story to the curator about this possibility of me doing a body of work for an exhibition at the Oakland Museum. And the lady looked me straight in my face and told me straight up, well, this is a California art museum and your work is not California art. Mm. I respectfully <laughs> told that. You do, you do see how I signed my artwork, don't you? Milton 510. Everything I make is California art. Because I am California art. I was born and raised in Oakland. I represented in my signature. The community raised me. Everything I do is California art. So what you're really saying is a black Californian don't represent California art. Right. 
And I ain't never done nothing with the Oakland Museum, still to this day. I don't have no grudges against the Oakland Museum. I love the Oakland Museum. I've supported the Oakland Museum. I've been a member of the Oakland Museum. That director is no longer there. And the Oakland Museum has gotten a little better in, in the exhibitions that they, that they mount for the community of color in the Bay Area. But that's what we deal with as, 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 as artists of color. So I've never shied away from accepting the mantle of being a black artist. So I, I'm a black artist unapologetically, and I've always have been a black artist unapologetically. So, you know, now sometimes I know that has probably kept me from getting included in certain exhibitions, but like my mama used to say, if it was meant to be, it was going to be. If it wasn't, it ain't. Mm -hmm. Keep it pushing. So that's my approach. So, you know, looking at, looking at all of this, this whole new excitement about black art, if we can get candid for a minute, I'll go in deep for you. No, let's do it, man. It just started with Kahende Wiley and Amy Sherrill in the Obama portraits. Mm -hmm. So before those two portraits, bruh, the art world was still hanging on to old white abstract masters. Every gallery you went to, and that's why the art world was so stagnant. Think about it. If you want to know how the art world works, all you got to do is look at an art auction. Mm -hmm. The same, the same, I'm telling you, it, it, it's, it's, like a, it's like a white party. White walls, white artists, and white wine. <laughs> that, 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 that was the art world until Amy Sherl and Obama, Amy Sherl, Kahinde Wiley, Michelle Obama, Amy Sherl doing Michelle Obama, Kahinde Wiley doing Obama, changed the landscape of the art world because now the black figure is desired and exotic again. Mm. But what it's done is it's revived the careers of artists like Barkley Hendricks. Artists who are smashing the industry, like Kerry James Marshall. Now he becomes a household name. You know, Puffy bought one of his pieces for like $12.5 million. Yeah, yeah. You know, but he's been in the game for, for a long time. He's an OG in the game. But it's, it was this new contemporary media. Just look, just, just look over the past year during the pandemic. How many African-American contemporary artists had their work placed on magazine covers of prominence? Charlie Palmer was on Time. Yep. Amy Sherrill was on Vanity Fair. Yep. Kadir Nelson was on National Geographic, The New Yorker, Esquire. K Kadir Nelson was everywhere. Yeah. At Jordan Castile and on Vogue magazine. Thank you. Yeah. So, you know, Bisa Butler, you know, she, she, her, her stuff is, uh, you know, on the covers uh, on all of these magazines. So this new acceptance of the black figure and the black image has changed the landscape of the fine art industry. Because now all these galleries are looking for artists who do black figurative work. Now, once again, I'm not a traditional figurative painter. I gave that up many years ago. I can do it. 
like I said, I'm formally trained. I've been doing, you know, any approach to art, I, I got on lock. I've been doing it since the seventh grade. I teach art. So it's like, it's not that I'm using the technique of collage as a crutch because I can't draw. In actuality, I can show you drawings of everything I've collaged because I use the same images over and over again. I used to draw them. Now I just cut them out and, 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 and apply them into the, into the composition of the work. Mm -hmm. So this understanding of what is art also has to shift. Because Marcel Duchamp and Andy Warhol, they're the reason we can say art today is more about idea than application. So I look at all of this and I'm, and, I'm, and I'm a student of art history. So I look at art history and what it has allowed us to participate in. And then I also look at how it's locked us out of inclusion in certain, to a certain degree. And all I'm trying to do is rectify the wrongs and elevate the African-American experience. At the end of the day, there had, there's going to be some social you know, criticism, a social critique. There's gonna be some you know, intellectual you know, scholarship and debate and conversation over this moment that we sit in now in art history. Because notice, all of this newfound love for the black imagery hasn't come under any you know, critical scrutiny yet, but it is going to come. Art moves in cycles and art is collected by movements. There's, there's a reason why Jansen's art history text doesn't include the Harlem Renaissance as an American art movement. Because mm -hmm. if it did, that means that it happened before the first New York School of Masters. You don't have to be no math major to understand that the 1920s and 30s came before the 1940s and 50s. Right, right. So if you acknowledge this group of black creatives in the 20s and 30s, you are saying that they are the ones who brought artistic culture to the Americas before these white men did in New York in the 40s and the 50s. So, I mean, that's, that's simple math. But that's what we're dealing with on a world scale. So I'm telling everybody, enjoy this newfound love. Enjoy, you know, this new attention that you're getting at the art fairs and that these galleries are showing you. Because there is going to be a shift away from this black imagery at some point. Mm -hmm. Because until we actually get people on the boards of these museums, until we flood the curatorial sector of these institutions with people of color. And the whole thing is this right here. Diversity is not just adding a black person into a position. I want to be clear on the record in what I'm getting ready to tell everybody. Diversity ain't just putting somebody black in a curatorial position. Because if that black person thinks like all the generations of white people that came before them. Oh, Clarence Thomas, say that again. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, yeah. So this notion that we can just plug a black person in here and we got diversity. No, 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 no. If that black person thinks like all of these other white people who have been the gatekeepers of art history for so many years, nothing is changing. 
you got to have change in thought to have diversity. Mm -hmm. Put me on one of these boards and watch how the museum changes. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. There is one up in there doing it. <laughs> but nah, so you know, I'll, come, I'll get off my soapbox on that one. But that, 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 but that is the legitimate point that we, we're going to have to see a new generation of young curators come in to upset the apple cart, just like in cinema. Like, you know, Spike Lee, you know, you, you got to look at, you know, you had Oscar Michaud. Um, you know, you, you you have all of these pioneers that came through film. You know, then you look at Ozzie Davis, Gordon Parks, and and, uh, and and Melvin Van Peoples. You know what I'm saying? Yep. Them brothers had to fall on the sword. You know, they didn't get to do everything they wanted to do, or even how they wanted to do it. You know, um, you you got some of these genius people who did films that are attached to black exploitation. When it was nothing exploitative about their projects, they 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 call the spook who sat by the door a black exploitation movie. They call Claudine a black exploitation movie. <laughs> There's nothing exploitative about the movies. Claudine is one of the most beautiful, scathing critiques of the American welfare system ever put on film. But it's called a black exploitation movie when it's really just a a, a critique of the welfare system and a beautiful love story. So, you know, but but without that, without a cornbread Earl of me, without, you know, a Cooley High, do we ever get a Spike Lee? And then without Spike Lee, do we ever get a Michael Collier? Do we ever get a Ava DuVernay? So the, these are the things I like to elevate and explore because it has to come in our arena as well someday, too. It's like you can't just have Thelma Golden out there by herself as the single champion for black art and artists. Right. The only authority that you trust. Yeah. And even in that, you know, that becomes somewhat dangerous because then if you don't come through through the studio, then people don't think that you're legitimate. Right. And it's like I tell people all of the time, the biggest black artist, and I say that with my chest, the biggest black artist in art history is Jean-Michel Basquiat. That brother didn't go to no art school and he didn't do no damn residency, you know, with, with, with some institution. He started on the street. And he is the biggest. Most sought after. African-American artist in art history, and he outsold his contemporaries while he was living. All facts. Oh, yeah. Big facts. So we have to be careful, you know, when we look at today's art market when it comes to black artists and, you know, you can't just have the artists who graduate from Ivy League programs or the artists who go through prestigious residency programs be the only artists we look at. There's genius out there, you know, in, in these streets. Absolutely. And, 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 you know, and like I tell people all of the time, like, you know, I forged a pretty good career as an artist and haven't gone through any of those programs now. I didn't graduate from an Ivy League school, but I've lectured and I've actually had my artwork used as course study at Ivy League institutions. So that should tell somebody something. Yeah, there's quality there. And and like you said, it depends on like how we even get to the system in which we start to value art in the first place. 
exactly. You, you know. Oh, for sure. I mean, you're giving it up today, man. You 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 own you own it today. I like this. <laughs> That's that good talk. That's what my grandma used to say. It got that good talk right there. <laughs> nah, that's up, man. So, uh, so as you're making these series, man, I'm gonna I'm gonna hit back on something that you described a little bit before when you talk start talking about making these smaller works um, that are more affordable for people. Like when you think about and you mentioned having, you know, these prestigious collectors. I mean, you can look on your website, you see Michael Jordan, LeBron James, Tavis Smiley, you know, Roland Martin, Charles Barkley. All these people have a piece of your artwork uh, in their homes, in their collections. Um, but how important is it for you to make sure that the regular people, as you, you know, quote unquote, regular people also have access to this kind of information that you're given? Because, you know, the the interesting thing about art and how society works is that, you know, something is only as valuable as what the next person is willing to pay for it. Mm -hmm. So rarity becomes extremely important. And when you think about art in its purest form, when it comes to, you know, people of color, it was really about ritual. You know, it's a relatively new thing for art to be viewed as a commodity. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't want to get too go too off into you know Native American culture and African from the continent culture and indigenous people's culture and how we viewed art as ritualistic. It like it meant something more than decoration, and it meant something more than investment and monetary value so we think about family heirlooms and what can we leave to our children and what we're leaving like tupac the homie rest in peace told me a beautiful story and it was about how black people don't have family crest like he was like you don't see you know it's like you know when you go to you know you see them boarding schools and people got the, the blue blazers on mm, and they yeah edge and crest on you know yeah, like yeah, yeah. we ain't got that he was like you know you know we were stolen <laughs> like and he was getting real deep about it and i was like damn but every point was valid so when we think about what are we going to be passing down as family heirlooms like what do we leave to the next generation and to their generation the generation that comes after them what are we really leaving what what are we passing down is it property you know, uh, Mother Nature could play, you know, a horrible joke on you and you can have a piece of land and because of global warming, now it's in flood waters. Now mm-hmm. it's in flood. Mm-hmm. So those type of things are never really guaranteed. But the one thing we know that has been cherished and protected and stolen all over the world is art. So I wanted to start by creating First, an heirloom, something that you fall in love with, something that means something to you. And it all starts with a story because everybody has a story. I could tell you a story of why Reggie Jackson was my favorite baseball player when I was little because he means something to me. You know, I've never met Reggie Jackson a day in my life. I know a lot of sports figures and entertainers, but I've never met Reggie Jackson. But if I ever get the chance to meet him, 
he's going to get the story on why he was so important to me when I was a little kid. He is the reason I'm a New York Yankees fan. So I want to be able to leave that story and his importance to someone that's important to me. I also want to leave that story about James Baldwin, Malcolm X, Medgar Evers, Ida B. Wells, Mary McLeod Bethune, Sojourner Truth, Harriet Tubman, Frederick Douglass. I want to leave those stories because they mean something to me. They profoundly changed who I am. They inform my outlook on the world. So what I want to do is give people a piece of who we are in the form that can be preserved and passed down. Mm-hmm. Now, here's how the monetary part works. Because I belong to the collections of, you know, the NBA, the NFL, and Major League Baseball, because celebrities own my work, because Fortune 500 companies like banks and universities own my work, your value is locked in. Because can't nobody tell Michael Jordan his picture ain't valuable. Mm, right. So tell you, Jamal, your picture ain't valuable. Right. You believe using the game uh, to your benefit. Exactly. Because can't nobody tell you you're a little original because it is an original. It's not valuable. Because if anybody, this, this, this is next level game for all you young, it's, it's aspiring artists. The first time you get an opportunity to show with an institution or any public venue, like at a university or a college or a church or nonprofit or even, even a cafe or a restaurant. And when you're doing business, everybody has to have an insurance policy, right? So, Mr. Barber, if they have to have an insurance policy, that means that they're covered to protect everything in their building. Right. Yep. Do you have artists asking for a copy of the insurance policy when they put their exhibition on the wall? Mm. They should. Yeah. Because they can call their insurance company and say, we are showing Mr. Barber for the next 45 days and we got to make sure his work is protected while it's under our roof. Here is the value of his pieces and we need to have them added onto our policy for minimum of liability, loss, theft, or damage, which means the artist now has certified documentation on the value of their work because if something happens to it, now a claim can be taken out. This arbitrarily walking around trying to figure out what your work is valued and not and who's going to legitimize the value of that. You don't even need to go through an appraiser. All you got to do is have an understanding of how insurance works and get your work insured every time you show it because these institutions already have the insurance. And already certified it. Oh, it's locked in. Yeah. I've got insurance policies from California to New York on my work. Because anytime they show us somewhere, oh, a guarantee is getting insured. You better believe the Chase Center got my work insured. 
You better believe Dodger Stadium got my work insured. You better believe Pac Bell Park got my work insured. Levi Stadium has my work insured. I mean, I can go on and on. My work is insured all over the country. All you got to do is get your work insured. You may have noticed that in some of my works, I use an insurance policy from slavery. It's the American life insurance policy on a slave in my work. And I have been criticized for using that by people. Why would you put that in the work, man? We got to get past all of these hateful images. And you know what I tell people about that image? What? During our worst time as human beings in the Americas, when my ancestors were enslaved, because let's not get it confused. Our ancestors were free Africans brought to the Americas and enslaved. They were insured, which means even in our worst time in this nation's history, when we were in bondage, we carried immense value. There's no reason any African-American or person of color should feel less than or insignificant because our origin starts with immense value. Mm. I understand the value of insurance and how it works. So I make sure my work is treated accordingly. Your investment is locked in, bro. That's what's up, man. Yeah, that's what's up, man. You got to tell them, yo. They got to tell them, like, and and show them, like, you know, as you as you describe it, man. It has a value to it, not just uh, it has a monetary value to it. But I I lean heavily when I talk about my artwork, and I think you're doing the same um, when you think of it as an heirloom, as something that has a spiritual quality to it already that can add to your home and give like good energy to you just on a day-to-day basis. Like eventually you can come into and you had a conversation about market value and like monetary value, but uh, just being able to walk by every day and see that Lauren Hill, like see that Rosa Parks, see that Jack Johnson, like peace from icon in your home uh, in the way that you have touched it, man, that, that has a value too, that I think, um, goes beyond you know even the monetary gains that people play yeah and we i mean and we look i mean we got we got a rich tradition in the in, in the black community of you know you i go into you know my my relatives homes do and you get all of the family photos all yep. framed crazy none of it is matching but the, <laughs> but the images is up on the wall beautifully and, and you're proud about it and it reminds you it's like this nostalgic walk down memory lane, you know, you see, you know, mommy and daddy and you see big mama and pawpaw, you see, you know, Uncle Junebug and George. I mean, you you see all of these different people, yeah. you know, mean something to you and the family. And, and, and it's just it's just a pleasant metaphoric departure to your own memory bank. Like that's what art and photo and photography does. That's what music does. That's what theater and dance does. It's just a beautiful departure. You see something on stage or in a gallery that takes your memory somewhere else to a happy time, to an explorative time. To so it just brings you on this this constant journey of exploration, and it's all about just reviving memory. And, and the things that make you who you are, good or bad. I mean, there's art that that, that, that sparks, you know, you know, heartfelt trauma and, 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 and emotion, you know, because people will see those historic photos of people being lynched and it's hard for them to accept. 
And I explain to people, I say, I get the pain, I understand the trauma, but do you realize that that image of them brothers hanging from a tree was the number one selling postcard in America at one time? Mm. Let that soak in. Yeah. Yeah. You got to bring that history to them, man. <laughs> Make sure they understand like what they yeah. looking at it, man. So many layers to your work, man. Yeah, man. I could talk to you forever, man. You you came up <laughs> here and started giving it up, man. I appreciate it, man. That's what I'm talking about. We got to bring you back on. I definitely want to bring you back because I want to talk more about uh, your teaching and um, and the stuff like that. The stuff you're doing down in down in Alabama, man, is really, really great, man. So I, I definitely want to want to bring you back on and talk a little bit more about that stuff, man. But why don't you tell, yeah. tell everybody where they can find you? <laughs> yeah, but bring me back anytime, man. I love having a conversation with you, man. And and I want to say this is a heartfelt thank you for just allowing me this opportunity to share a little piece of my story. Um, and I really mean that from the bottom of my heart, man. Thank you sincerely. But yeah, but the easiest way for people to find me is really to just, um, I'm on social media. I'm Milton 510 across most social media platforms. Milton Bowens with an S if you Google me. Um, but in addition to that, on Twitter, Twitter did me wrong because they made me spell my name. So on Twitter, <laughs> on Twitter you actually got to spell out Milton 510. I'm not the numbers. I'm Milton 510. <laughs> <laughs> who got you? Who got your number, man? <laughs> it's dirty. But anyway. <laughs> And then Milton510.com, you know, that's my website. So, you know, like I said, you know, Milton510 pretty much across all social media platforms. But if you Google me, you can Google me under Milton Bones, B-O-W-E-N with the S. And um, and you'll see what comes up, you know. You know, I'm out of here. I'm just doing me. That's what's up, man. Make sure y'all get on social media and get you one of them collective pieces, man. Them, them Milton baseball cards that he, <laughs> that he putting out there. <laughs> Thank you, man. Appreciate you coming on the podcast, bro. I appreciate it, man. Thank you. And that's it. Another episode of Studio Noise in the Bag. Big shout out to Milton510 for coming on the podcast, dropping them gems. Next week, we got Clayton Singleton doing the same thing. <laughs> it never stops. I keep it going. To all my artists out there, check your receipts. Do your taxes. It's that time. Get it going. Get it right. Keep making that noise. And we'll be back here with you next week. We can't wait, baby. We'll see y'all next week. Peace. Thank you for listening to the Studio Noise Podcast. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Please take a second to rate us and write a review to make sure everybody knows about the noise. Follow us on Instagram at Studio Noise Podcast.